Now, first this hour to this special gathering I attended yesterday in Adelaide uh, about renewable energy, including green hydrogen. There's an almighty race on between the states as to which one will dominate this sector that's become that will become central to our lives. South Australia has been first out of the blocks. Its Premier Peter Malinowskis convened the meeting, but it's fully aware that other state governments are competing intensely to position their communities to grab the massive investment investment capital that'll be needed. Huge change is coming. No one can really say what the electricity market will look like in a decade, but it'll be different. An adjustment is now well underway. The question is, how will we manage this big transition from fossil fuel-led energy to renewables, akin to the changes we're told required during wartime? Well, three people joined me for a good discussion about the near future. <clears throat> David Neal, now the CEO of IFM Investors, with $200 billion uh, in funds under management, formerly head of the Future Fund. Audrey Zibelman rejoined us too. She made a big splash here after arriving from New York as head of AEMO, if you recall, now advising internationally on energy transition. And Emeritus Professor Ross Garno, uh, whose various books have been very influential, his latest is Superpower Transformation, joined us as well, and I welcome them all. Now, I'm going to ask each of you, Chris Bowen, the energy, uh, the climate change minister, said that we are making a lot of progress, lots is happening, but the impression I've had from this morning is that a lot of this is still a work in progress for which capital is needed, big capital investment. Now, David Neal, speaking from the point of view of capital uh, in, in your work at IFM, has capital got the message yet, would you say? Great question, Geraldine. Um, certainly getting the message. Um, of course, the message is a complex one, which is, which is part of the issue. So there are, there's $50 trillion worth of pension fund money around the world and all the other institutions, and they are all on this journey at the same time, including Australian superannuation funds, trying to figure out how to play a role in this transition. I think they've, they've certainly, most of them anyway, have got the message that this transition is really, really important because future returns depend on the quality of the future system. And so if we let our system degrade, obviously that's not good for us as citizens, but it's also terrible for for investment returns. So the fiduciary duty point, which was debated for quite a long time actually, as to whether this was an appropriate thing for superannuation funds, pension funds and the like to be invested in, um, was this just do-gooding kind of stuff. That debate, I think, in most parts of the world has passed. And so superannuation funds realise they've got to play a role because future returns depend on it. Um, how to play that role is something that many are still wrestling with and, and their particular mandates as to how to organise themselves into this transition are, are still evolving and some are more sophisticated than others. Different parts of the world are more sophisticated than others. I would say that the Australian superannuation industry, again, I think is, is, is leading in this area but probably still got work to do on that, on that sophistication. So I, I, I think the message is there. The challenge is... So do we have the clarity around policy leadership? Do we have the clarity around the settings, the incentives for the long term? You know, th these are investors who, who are trying to invest over decades. And, and if you don't have clarity of that over those decades, it's really hard to mobilise the capital. Um, it's one of the great things that 
this South Australian government is doing is it's providing that clarity and has done for many years. We need the rest of the country, and in particular the federal government, to, to get on that path too, because that's probably the single most important thing, is understanding what the rules of the road are and are those rules of the road going to be maintained into the future. And they're not good enough to come from states, separate states, those rules of the road? Uh, look, as much clarity as possible is the answer. Um, so, so depending on what the specific context is and, and the particular investment opportunity, then certainly um, the, the state clarity is important. But, um, but anything that might disrupt it, you know, for, for as long as you've got partisan politics at a federal level, it just weakens the argument. And remember, we're in a global competition for capital here. So if other countries organise themselves better, that's where the capital is more likely to flow. Does that ring true to you, Ros uh, well, certainly the capital requirement's very large. Uh, to, to build a superpower, I say in the book, that we'll have to spend about 5.5% of GDP for about a generation and a half, on average over the next 35 years, of about $125 billion in today's prices. Uh, that seems impossibly large. Until you think about what we've done in comparable circumstances. Uh, uh, in the first decade of this century, China went through the fastest rate of growth over a sustained period any large economy's ever gone through. It uh, introduced huge increases in demand for iron ore, coal, aluminium, all of the resources. Prices rose by 400% for all of those things. Uh, and we invested in restructuring of the Australian economy to supply minerals to China mm. uh, to, to service their development. We uh, we averaged about 5% of GDP going investment in the mining industry for a decade. At a peak, it reached 7.9% of GDP. So we did it to make rapid economic growth possible in China. And I don't think that a task of similar annual proportions, it'll have to go on for longer, and similar a annual proportions, built for what broadly based Australian prosperity and global uh, management of the climate problem, I, I don't think it is any more difficult than it was to restructure for supplying minerals to the China boom. Now, you do need stable long-term policies. We've had a mess in climate policy in Australia uh, over the last decade. The, the uh, abolition of carbon pricing was hugely damaging. We'd be in a much better position if we had that. Uh, but uh, uh, our advantages are so large that I think that getting policy moving in the right direction will be uh, enough to generate the sort of uh, flows of capital that require, that's required. There's no shortage of capital globally. Uh, globally, we're going through a unique period uh, of surplus savings globally. That's the interesting thing that we had Brookfield come in, you know, a foreign, a huge amounts of money came in from Canada and America for developments with origin. And I sort of thought to myself, well, why hasn't that come from Australia? Why hasn't that sort of big thinking? I mean, I really want to go to you, Audrey, <laughs> but I don't even know whether you're fully aware of this, but there's been this sort of extraordinary development of this amazing investment in, in Australian decarbonisation in, in a long-term way, but it, it's money that's come from overseas. Well, you know, and I think one of the uh, advantages Australia has on all of this is we're really about a decade ahead of everybody else 
in actually the process of decarbonizing the system. So you have companies like Brookfield, who I think recognize that, and Iberdrola is a Spanish utility, are recognizing that you know where we are seeing grid decarbonization occur at scale is in Australia in a way that that you can have great learnings. And so, as I you know think about your question, Geraldine, you know when, back in the U.S. There's a huge issue in terms of how do you connect renewables to the grid. You know, this whole process of connections is so challenging. That's something we, you know, we're still not through it, but we're, we've made a far more progress in Australia. And in other parts of the U.S., you simply can't even connect to the system because it's just not there yet. And so I think where we have discrete advantages is getting the policies and practices so that when capital comes in, they know that not only can you sign up the deal, but you can actually get the system online. So I think, you know, speed um, is really to, you know, our advantage right now, and we should, we should do everything we can to leverage it. See, I suppose in a way, um, is it a precarious time, David, or is it an exciting time? If, if you're thinking of big investments, uh, it, it sounds an extraordinary potential, but when is it going to be engaged in, in a big way? First comment I'd make is, is it already is. So there's a huge stock of existing assets being decarbonised all the time. They don't get necessarily the headlines. So when an investor like Brookfield comes in um, and buys an asset with a, with a declared strategy of decarbonising, I think it's important to understand that that's an event because it was a transaction. But within all of our assets, and our peer managers would be doing similar things, in all of our assets across all of Australia, across the globe, they have transition plans and they're working hard to bring emissions down. And, and that's actually where a large amount of the emissions reduction has to occur mm. um, because that's where the emissions are. And, and it's, it's good to build the new. We have to build the new and the, and the initiatives in, in South Australia around hydrogen and things are, are, are fabulous and exciting and, and, and needed. But we also need in an orderly, thoughtful, skillful way, we need to deliver capital into the assets that have the emissions so that they can bring those emissions down. And there's an awful lot of activity going on already, but it's just not quite so high profile. And, and just, just going back, sorry, to your remark about, you, you kind of, um, I think you were raising a concern that how come we're reliant on sort of foreign capital coming in to do this. I, I just think you need to understand that it's a global, the capital markets are global. And our example of a foreign investor coming in and doing something at much the same time we've gone into Canada for an investment. Um, yes, right. So, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's basically a global market looking for those opportunities and, and Australian superannuation funds, Australian investors, IFM, other Australian investors are very, very active in this space, not just in Australia, but globally. Sorry, I didn't really answer your question, did I? It, it is both an incredibly exciting opportunity whenever there's so much capital, I mean, the sorts of capital that Ross has talked about, 100 billion plus a year for decades, when there's that much capital required, ordinarily, the investor's eyes would light up and go, wow, this is amazing, you know, I've got a resource here that's desperately in demand, um, that should be a fabulous opportunity. As I said, the, the challenge is that it's an incredibly complex one, um, and it requires a lot of moving parts to bring it together. It's not just, from our, you know, in our context, it's not just going and looking at a toll road, doing your diligence on the toll road it, it, and yes. buying it. This requires lots of moving parts to come together, which is why this conference is important, bringing the, the policy makers and the industrialists and the capital providers and the technologists together at the same time, I think. 
that's the trick, um, and well, that makes it complicated and, and risky. I must say, Audrey, your lovely story about arriving here, and I'll get you to tell the story, when you did arrive here in Australia, and I interviewed you not long afterwards, it was just as that amazing spat, public spat occurred between the, the former Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and the former Premier here, Jay Wetherill. And you believe it led to something really quite remarkable because it did lead to a competition between big players. Sure, and it was a spat around the fact that uh, there was a system black event in South Australia and people were thinking that it was the policy around renewables that created it and rather than walking away from it, the Premier leaned into it and took the uh, challenge between Mike Kennan Brooks and uh, Elon Musk and went ahead and built the big battery. And, and to me, this is really the story of how we're going to create the future. You know, we talk about the power system being a system of systems, and it is. It's generators and transmission and even how we consume energy all having to be working in concert. But that's only one piece of it. It's also because it's an essential service. It requires our policies to be aligned in the direction we want to go. And that's not the end of it. We also need the markets and the regulation to be aligned because through all of that then, capital then can see the future and then come in because they have the confidence, not that they're going to have high returns, because you know, to me, what I've learned along the way is, is that it's actually, it's not because you want to you know, sort of have these peak returns. What you want in this industry is to have stable returns. And it's that constancy of theory, but that the other point it does is it becomes an accelerant. And so what we saw with the batteries, nobody believed we could do it in six months, but we had to. And it was simply that saying, we're going to get there, and everyone worked towards that common goal, that we were, did something that most people sort of were astonished that we completed. Mm. And, um, but mostly, I think, it was the government, the networks, AEMO and Tesla all saying, put, you know, and this is, I think, really important, we're, we're not going to get there with hubris, we're going to get there with humility. And a, and a type of collaboration, because it's a multi-dimensional problem, we need engineers, accountants, economists, politicians, all aligned to understand that, because other, and technicians. Otherwise, it just won't work. And I think that was, you know, despite everything, it was people getting in the room and putting, leaving their egos outside and solving complex issues in a short amount of time. And that's, that's really, to me, the, you know, the story of the future. Um, Ross, do we need an industry policy about this? Well, it needs a, a sensible industry policy. Industry policy in Australia uh, before the 1980s had come to be associated with industry protection. Mm. We don't need that sort of policy. We, we want to focus on industries that can be globally competitive. But there are circumstances in which government deciding that a, a, a particular set of industries are going to be very important in the future and laying a policy foundation for that can, can move things forward and create an environment where you get much larger levels of pr private investment later on. Uh, uh, and I think the, the big battery was one of those. Until the South Australian big battery, AEMO was before you came, but not very long before that incident, AEMO said there is room in Australia for batteries up to one megawatt. Uh, and uh, it was impossible, but then once it was done, uh, it was not only possible, but everyone else wanted to do it. And now you've got dozens of these huge batteries, some of them much bigger. It was the biggest battery in the world mm. when it was put in in Jamestown in, in uh, South Australia. Uh, now, 
Uh, there are half a dozen in, uh, in Australia that are several times as big. Uh, Australians don't believe anything is real until that it's happening in Australia. The same thing will happen with green iron. There'll be one green iron plant built uh, and uh, no longer will it be impossible and then it will be like the battery, everyone will be doing it. I think that the uh, uh, South Australian government's electrolyzer is very likely to have a similar effect. It's something that, that you, you, you shouldn't have to be uh, particularly well informed or, 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 or a Mensa IQ to recognize it's the way Australia has to go, but it's impossible until someone does it. Well, South Australian government's gonna do it uh, and once one is done, there'll be a hundred. Uh, and uh, uh, there is a role for that sort of government leadership. It would not be necessary if we had a, a, a private sector that uh, could co comfortably take those sorts of risks and, uh, uh, and invest in the future. Our private sector and our, our sorry David, our superannuation industry is not good at that sort of thing. They need leadership in providing a lead in some of those things. Look, there are a couple of things that come out of that, that very in interesting discussion about whether we could be entering a time when we flip our comparative advantage, because for years our comparative advantage was supplying uh, what we ripped out of the ground overseas. Do you think it is shifting, Ross, so that we might, because we have got these um, commodities available to us now and, and all sorts of capacities, that we could actually get the comparative advantage by making steel here, for instance, rather than uh, exporting the material so that others make it, which would be a complete flipping of our understanding, frankly, for the whole of European settlement, wouldn't it? Well, not since the whole period of European settlement. Uh, Australia processed a much higher proportion of its minerals in the late 19th century and early 20th century than it does now. It actually processed a much higher percentage of minerals uh, in the 1990s uh, than it does now. But it will be much, the economic forces will be in the direction of much stronger comparative advantage. Yes, answer your own question, it is flipping. It will be very different and, different, and the, the centre of the difference is that uh, reductance and uh, energy required for processing were, not, were no more expensive in Kobe or Pusan or Shanghai uh, in the coal-based world or the gas-based world than they are in Eastern Australia, uh, but they're much more expensive in the yeah. world of zero uh, uh, emissions because it's much more expensive to move overseas renewable energy or hydrogen than it is to move coal or natural gas. Mm. However, in terms of citizens thinking about this, the social licence to operate, now, I want to quote Frank Calabria, who's the CEO of Origin Energy, who said recently, he warned of the need to maintain an honest dialogue with the community that amounts to much more than virtue signalling about achieving emissions reduction. The community won't congratulate us for that if we deliver poor reliability outcomes or unsustainable price increases on the way through. Now, Audrey, how do you think the Australian people are hearing all this? Are they listening to it with confidence or not? I mean, Frank is, is correct in the sense, uh, in, in the real sense, that if along the way on the path to, to decarbonisation, you know, people see price spikes that make energy unaffordable 
or they don't have confidence in the grid, either as a business owner or an individual citizen, and they feel vulnerable as a result, that the transition would be really very difficult. And it's not going to be just moral suasion. We have to make sure that, that, that the transition itself is able to deliver value. And, but, I, but I think the good news, and, and to pick up on what Ross has said, there's a couple things that are to our natural advantage here. I mean, the point that I think you're making is that wind and solar as a resource here is cheaper than other parts of the world simply because we have such great resources. And so we can create the markets that allow us to take advantage of this cheap available energy and give it to the benefits of customers. I disagree with the, with the sort of idea that reliability will suffer because what we've learned here is that a combination of renewables with storage and using uh, our ability to electrify demand and make it flexible allow us to create a grid that is both cleaner and more efficient for consumers. So, there's, so the idea that you have to trade off decarbonizing the grid with price and reliability, that's a sort of a yesteryear discussion. We know we can, we can get there, and actually Australia is sort of proving that. You know, um, one of the things that I, when I started here, we started talking about how to create markets for demand reduction so people could get paid to actually, if they had flexible resources, to get them off the grid and see themselves as an asset. That was seen as, you know, I was, when people were accusing me of trying to create a third world nation in Australia, when it was something I was very used to in the US. Now we're beginning to realize that this type of flexibility, if you have solar on your roof, and during the you know, afternoon there's too much solar and you can put it in a battery, and, and then in the evening when the sun gets down, you sell it back, suddenly you become part of the game. And part of the discussion I think that we need to think about as the transition is, is the recognition that not only can we say, well, actually, economic, good economic outcomes and good environmental outcomes can occur, but also we're creating this concept of energy democratization, where the ability to participate both as a, a customer but also a vendor can rest in individuals, and through that, I think we keep the, we create the social license, and and you know, farmers and First Nations can be part of that solution. So we stop thinking about these uh, ourselves as stakeholders in the future, but we start believing that we are actually the shareholders, and and in a real sense, both economically and also because you know it's our future that we're creating. I also think there's a tendency, you know, we have we we did have a rigidity built into the process where we didn't change the markets for years because we built the markets at liberalization and we didn't want to change them. And that's true in the US as well as here. What we need to recognize is that during this period of transition, there's a bigger role of government because it's a massive industrial change we're making. And so putting in policies that support capital coming in and maintaining reliability and price is important. But that these policies don't have to be policies that remain after the transition. They are an enablement, and I, and I think we have a tendency to think, oh, if, if government acts in a certain way, that's a permanent change versus no. It's just to make sure that this transition doesn't occur in such a way that it, it creates a huge amount of disruption in people's lives. And that, that is the appropriate role. Look, I do want to ask about related issues to do with planning. Uh, at the Sydney Energy Forum in July this year, um, I understand the German energy minister outlined how they'd put aside uh, many of the 
consultative planning policies, I think he called it, uh, and were pushing ahead with renewable projects to secure um, their uh, energy and, in effect, saying we are on a semi-war footing. I mean, you know, the Germans probably do think they are, actually. And that they just had to deal with the energy crisis caused by Russia. Now, I wonder... <laughs> You alluded to this, Ross. That's, now, that's a quick, quick way to lose community support, isn't it? Uh, is to say, well, some of the planning rules that we have in place around your community are not going to work because we have such a crisis. Do you see that as um, a, a, an issue that will have to be dealt with? Well, fortunately, our position is not the German one. Uh, it's only by bringing the, the whole community along that we'll uh, sustain success, done right, uh, you get a lot of support. It makes local communities wealthier. It improves uh, uh, employment in uh, uh, in rural and uh, provincial Australia. Uh, but you do have to have the consultation process. You do have to respect, respect uh, environmental processes. The, the Spencer Gulf, uh, which uh, both the Premier and I mentioned, is an area of huge opportunity for expansion of the zero emissions uh, industry. Is, is one of the most valuable marine environments on Earth. Uh, it's beautiful. I drove there uh, to, to Wael with a couple of uh, grandkids uh, a few days ago, and uh, when they uh, w were swimming in uh, the water, they were visited by half a dozen dolphins. Uh, uh, it's a magnificent marine environment. We would make a huge mistake if we did not uh, respect that. It's a matter of doing it right. Uh, do it properly and we can uh, uh, get the support that's necessary to build this prosperous new economy. Look, I do want to speak to you, Audrey, about AI and machine learning, because you did mention that, that this is key to doing this transition at scale. Is any country ahead of the curve on this? Um, here, here's the point. Um, we can use digitalization tools like simulation, like AI, like machine learning, uh, and even quantum um, computing as a means of helping us create the capabilities, the tools that are going to be necessary to run a power system that it's going to require, it's going to be billions of devices, renewable energy, things like that, that's hugely data intensive and enable us to solve the issues in such a way that we have a lot more confidence. But what's all equally important is once we develop this capability, we have the capability, when you think, I think about when, you know, how software sort of, you know, in, in Silicon Valley we talk about software eating the world, is to think about how, for example, when we travel and, you know, we use our credit cards and some of us remember that you couldn't do that. But now we can because we have these platforms. When we think about, you know, when I show up into airport now in Australia, I call up my Uber app and it works the same way here as it works in the U.S. What digitalization can do for us is, is actually not only develop the tools but develop the standardization and also develop the capabilities so that when people are running the power system, they can learn from each other. And, and so when we think about how we use information, so they don't have to discover the same thing over and over again. We can use digital tools so that when someone's running a power system in uh, Johannesburg and they're wondering whether they can accommodate a 20 to 30 percent uh, increase in solar, the tool can say, well, yes, this is how you do it. And the reason the tool knows that it's done that way because it was done in Adelaide. And there's no reason then for the system in, in Johannesburg to have to relearn that lesson. And so 
this, this aspect of using simulation and digitalization, I think, is not only something that we can help inform in Australia, but becomes, again, a, a good that we can export that is going to be necessary because we just have run out of time to think that every utility in the world is going to have to learn how to do this. And, and then it's really how we use intelligence in the system and data and information to, to get us all there faster and cheaper. Well, we, uh, we'll see. I think uh, the debate is it's a very interesting debate and I think it's been marvellous to have you all here. So, ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Audrey, Ross and David. And that was an edited version of a panel that I hosted at the South Australian Investment Conference uh, with David Neal from IFM Investors, Professor Ross Garno and Audrey Zebelman, the former head of the Australian Energy Market Operator. And thank you for your texts on this as well. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.